Welcome to Policy, Guns and Money, the Bigger Picture series with me, Bani Grewal, as special presenter. Cooperation in cybersecurity and digital technologies is at the center of a deepening Australia-India partnership, bilaterally and through the Quad. Both sides intend to shape an inclusive and resilient digital environment in response to an increasingly challenging cyber landscape in the Indo-Pacific. On this week's episode, Fergus Hansen is joined by India's National Cybersecurity Coordinator, Lieutenant General Dr. Rajesh Pant. They discuss the evolution of the Australia-India Cyber Partnership, the cybersecurity threat landscape in light of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and India's national security policies on 5G. Thank you for joining us on the ASPI podcast. I'm Fergus Hansen, the Director of the International Cyber Policy Centre here at ASPI. We're extremely fortunate to be joined by Lieutenant General Dr. Rajesh Pant. Lieutenant General Pant is India's National Cybersecurity Coordinator within India's National Security Council Secretariat. In this role, he's responsible for developing India's cybersecurity strategy. Previously, he was the head of the Indian Army's cyber training establishment for three years and served in the Army Signal Corps for 41 years. He's received three awards by the President of India for his distinguished service. Thank you, Lieutenant General Pant, for joining us. Thank you, Fergus. We're seeing a significant rise in cyber attacks on government agencies and infrastructure. What is India's perception on the rise of cybercrime and the importance of cybersecurity, especially given the current war in Ukraine? Uh, Well, thank you, Fergus, and greetings of the day to all the attendees of this podcast. Uh, Thanks also to the Australian Strategic Policy Institute for having me here. It's a real honor to join you in this podcast. And at the outset, I hope the uh, floods in uh, Southeast uh, Australia have receded. And on that positive note, uh, thank you. That's a great question to start with. Because rising uh, cyber crimes, frankly, Fergus, is not a perception. It is a very hard reality today. Of course, one aspect is the sheer scale of our digital service users. In India, we have 760 million mobiles, 1.2 billion registered in the digital identity portal that we have. So naturally, the statistics of crime are also more. But the uh, cyber incidents are growing, as you said. We have 1.15 million cyber incidents reported to CERT last year. And just yesterday, I was checking up from my Indian Cybercrime Coordination Center under the Ministry of Home Affairs, and they told me that the number of financial frauds are increasing. And there are 2,500 complaints coming in daily in our portal, cybercrime.gov.in. So, you know, there's also a recent report by CrowdStrike that states that 49% of all companies in India suffered multiple ransomware attacks, while 76% experienced at least one. So I think the sequential nature of events in the last two, three years, firstly, the COVID waves and the digital transformation that happened after that, and the increase in the use of online digital services in almost all sectors of governance and business and education, plus the planned 5G rollout, Uh, considering the Internet of Things and the industrial Internet of Things. I think all of this have, uh, you know, provided easy pickings for the criminals. Uh, As they used to say last year, that there was a perfect storm for cybercrime. So, in a nutshell, rise of cybercrime is a very, very serious issue. Not only for India, but for the entire world. I mean, you may recall what the World 
Economic Forum has consistently been saying that cybercrime is the biggest man-made risk towards the economic progress of nations. So that, that is a state as far as the cybercrime is concerned, and you're absolutely right. Whether it's the government and the critical infrastructure, which I'm most concerned about, or you know these financial frauds and etc. and the supply chain attacks that I mentioned, it is a cause of concern. Thank you. Thank you for that. Just wonder if I could ask a little bit of a follow up around that in terms of the the conflict in Ukraine. I was just wondering, do you have? I know it's early days, but have you seen any uptick in cybersecurity threats as a result of that, or has there been any change in the threat landscape from India's perspective as a result of that? Yeah, Ferguson. Uh, you know, firstly. Let me state that I hope this conflict in Eastern Europe ends at the earliest. Uh, we are all, uh, you know, concerned about the toll it is taking on humanity. Now, having said that, as far as the Ukraine uh, conflict is concerned, while it has not impacted cyber crime per se, but it has definitely endorsed the importance of cyber operations as a part of hybrid warfare. Now, it's a, it's a given now that non-kinetic warfare will proceed and accompany any conventional warfare. So cybersecurity of critical infrastructure has become very important. And we've seen it consistently, you know, whether it was Estonia 2007, Georgia, and now, of course, Ukraine. The protection of critical infrastructure and the cybersecurity of that is very important. Now, a couple of more uh, aspects have come out since you mentioned uh, Ukraine. One is that we are seeing a number of disinformation campaigns on both the sides, not only on both the sides, globally to target uh, what is called as the cognitive domain. We have also seen, you know, how the tech world, if I may say, has split, not only in the surface web, in the dark web also. We are finding, you know, the anonymous groups giving details of the other and the other side giving details of this side. So this is something that I'm seeing for the first time as to how there's a split in the dark web also. And also, you know, we are seeing the impact of the sanctions being applied through cyberspace. This is also a new phenomenon. Whether it was uh, the SWIFT or whether it is the internet, as related to the Ukraine war, we are seeing a significant impact of the, uh, you know, so-called earlier, we used to only say economic sanctions, but now, um, if I can say the cyber sanctions being um, applied. So in a nutshell, in a nutshell, the importance of cyberspace and its impact has grown considerably as a result of this conflict, and a number of lessons are there to be learned by all of us. Just to sort of build on that, we've talked about the, well, one of the, the global concerns that's on India's radar. Could you talk about the cybersecurity concerns that India sees, both from a domestic point of view and maybe some of the other global issues that you're tracking as well? I think you've already mentioned ransomware and, and Ukraine, but are there others that are on your radar as well? both domestically and internationally? Yeah, Ferguson, let me start from the forest and then I'll come back, come down to the trees and then the leaves. Let me start at the global level. Because why I'm saying is that cyberspace, in a sense, is inter-network, so it is borderless. And it is characterized by a lack of attribution, as you very well know how the attacks happen, you know, the anonymity, etc. So, in addition, you know, we have the dark web with all its different markets. And as if that was not enough, there is this aspect of cryptocurrency and, you know, again, the anonymity, etc. So all these aspects are global in nature. Now, the main concern at the global level, I find, is that there are no satisfactory legal frameworks uh, which are effective against, you know, these international cyber criminals. 
we have the mutual legal assistance treaty and you know how time consuming it is letters rogatory take too long at the united nations level it has taken almost 20 years to come out with those 11 non binding norms of responsible behavior by states on the internet uh, and uh, cyberspace so you know we had some good treaties earlier talent talent 2.0 but i find people are you know not even coming to a common ground as far as the definitions of uh, cyber warfare is concerned what are the threshold uh, what are cyber weapons etc so at the global level you know there are a lot of grayness i find and this is again you know what is being taken advantage of by the criminals and with this latest conflict i do not know if we will again start talking about the splinter net uh, which we were talking very seriously about two years back uh, when china proposed the new internet protocol at the itu so the global scenario is grim that is one aspect at a regional or the if i may say the plurilateral level there is some good news you know starting off let's say from the counter ransomware initiative uh, last year in october 36 nations uh, like minded nations got together and decided to take on you know the cyber criminals especially the ransomware as a service providers etc uh, head on and we've created five lines of effort i lead the one on network security and resilience australia is leading the one on disruption then there is one on illicit finance there is one on diplomacy and there is one on a public private partnership so here a lot of good traction is taking place so at a regional level that i mentioned whether it is you know the quad or the asean or the close to india say colombo security conclave etc a lot of traction is taking place and that that is the good news at the national level again you know there are concerns there are concerns and the concerns relate to all the three aspects of cyberspace the people aspect the process aspect and the technology aspect in the people aspect i am uh, you know really concerned as to how to cyber skill the large population that we have uh, especially the vulnerable population when i say vulnerable i am talking of our people in the uh, rural areas who suddenly you know got access to 4g uh, and a lot of data connectivity in the apps etc their cyber hygiene has to be built up and also the uh, government people and the uh, large uh, expanse we have in states etc so uh, people aspect lot of work to be done in the process i find that the small and medium and enterprises you know maybe they don't have the funds to have a proper ciso or a cell or you know implement whether a managed service provider or a security operation center etc but they are now part of the uh, ecosystem they could be supplying something to a critical infrastructure so the sme angle is important and by and large i find that, that there is a lack of processes in various places you know sops that you understand there is a lot of uh, work needs to be done and finally the technologies in the technology part you know the cyber criminals are getting smarter and smarter the way they are finding to uh, ingress the malware whether it, it is through advertising whether it is through supply chain and you are aware of you know authorized sites the the products coming from authorized uh, uh, portals are carrying malware and then i'm not talking of the traditional phishing etc but uh, they are able to bypass our traditional systems etc so technology is definitely a big concern as to how do we make our network resilient so the stress is now on risk analysis and resilience so uh, these are broadly the concerns at the you know the global level the regional level and the uh, domestic level i was going to pivot now to some of the the work that you're involved in between australia and india 
India and Australia recently held their first foreign minister cyber framework dialogue in Melbourne, which I believe you attended. And they're the only two members of the pod now that have a foreign minister-level dialogue dedicated to cyber. I was wondering, what are Delhi's views on the India-Australia cyber arrangement and can you talk about its mission, vision and activities and, and what the next steps uh, look like in terms of that cooperation? Yes, Fergus. So that's, that's again, uh, you know, a bright spot in the uh, cyber space, the India-Australia cyber cooperation. And you mentioned Melbourne and it was a pleasure meeting Minister Marie Spain and Ambassador Tobias Speaken and, of course, visiting the Melbourne Cricket Ground and the tennis stadium that you have. Where we have, I have very fond memories of Melbourne. But the India-Australia bilateral uh, foreign minister's meeting, basically, they have, uh, you know, come out with a joint statement where we are saying that we will cooperate in digital economy, in cybersecurity, critical and emerging technologies, cybercrime, capacity building innovation, and cyber governance. And during the meeting, we discussed about, you know, how our technologies should be designed, developed, governed, and used consistent with our shared democratic values and respect for human rights. And we also, you know, being part of the Indo-Pacific, we have reaffirmed our commitment to an open, secure, free, accessible, stable, peaceful, and interoperable cyberspace. So in addition, a very good uh, outcome came out of this dialogue was that we have agreed to establish an Australia-India Center of Excellence for Critical and Emerging Technologies in Bengaluru. And now we have agreed to work together to address the threats of, you know, malicious cyber activity and protect the security of our next generation networks like 5G and 6G, etc. So all in all, it was a great cooperation. And let me add that uh, India-Australia cooperation, uh, besides the bilateral level, is happening at the regional level also. I uh, wonder if you are following the Quad and the joint working groups that we have created. And then I mentioned uh, that we have created a senior cyber group within the Quad where I am representing India and we have Deputy NSN and Newberger representing the US and we have Takisai San from Japan and uh, we have Secretary Mike Pizzillo from the Ministry of Home Affairs in Australia. So at the regional level also we are cooperating and at the global level I told you that we were both members of the UNGG, the sixth UNGG which finally reached some consensus and you know, there was a lot of back-channel talks that made that happen, as also the initiatives like the counter-ransomware initiative. So with India-Australia, it's a thumbs up, and I hope that it remains that way. That's uh, really uh, great to hear all that cooperation that's taking place. I was going to ask you just a final question around telecommunication security. Australia took an approach quite some time ago around 5G vendors and um, came up with this language around high-risk vendors that had the effect of excluding Huawei and ZTE from participation in the, the 5G network here in Australia. While there seems to be a lot of alignment between India and Australia, India's taken a, a different approach to that type of issue of telecommunication security. I was just wondering if you could explain a little bit about what India's approach has been. Yes, Fergus, uh, I think uh, firstly, compliments to Australia for uh, starting this initiative as early as 2018. And when it came to 5G, we analyzed and we found that, you know, it is not a pure telecom system. It is going to create the basis of an ecosystem where, uh, you know, the Internet of Things will be connected to it, the uh, industrial Internet of Things, 
there's going to be a lot of AR, VR, and all those, you know, driverless vehicles and drones, etc. And if you see the three releases of the uh, 3GPP that are going to form part of 5G, the enhanced mobile broadband, the ultra-reliable low-latency communications, and the massive machine-type communications, we found that the perspective with which we had to see the security of 5G had to be different. It uh, couldn't be, you know, like the other Gs. So uh, then we went into details and we found that we will have to put national security at the forefront. And then, you know, the commercial aspects will come after that. So with that background, on uh, 16th of December, uh, last to last year, uh, the uh, cabinet approved what is called as the National Security Directive on the telecom sector. So basically what this directive says is that, and it is already now effective from 15th of June last year, that any product, any product that is going to be connected to the telecom network of India has to be a trusted product from a trusted source. And what is a trusted product and what is a trusted source? For that, my office is the designated authority. And uh, above me, there is a National Security Committee on uh, Telecom, which has an interministerial representation. It has an industry representation. So there is a process after that, in the sense that whenever a telecom service provider who's the licensee uh, wants to buy any equipment, he uploads it on our portal, trustedtelecom.gov.in, that is publicly available. And uh, then we go through a process. We see who is the OEM, what are the you know the ultimate beneficiaries of that OEM. And once we call it a trusted source, then we go into the product. And in the product, we are going down to the active uh, semiconductor level. So, which is a lot of hard work for us, <laughs> frankly, I can tell you, going down to the chips level and as to where the chips are coming from and which is the company making those chips. And again, what are the credentials of that company? So uh, the plus point is that the database that we are building up in this process is globally unique. So uh, we are, I think we are the only country in the world which is, uh, you know, doing this exercise. But uh, basically, this is this is what the whole thing is about. And once we find that, yes, it is a trusted product, then the portal itself, we tell that telecom service provider who had asked for it that, yes, you can go ahead and buy this. So within a period of, you know, six to eight weeks, this whole process is completed. And uh, that is how we are going about it. Of course, there are some clauses to ensure that there is no disruption in the network. We have got some provisions for emergency procurement, etc. So that is how uh, we are taking care of it. But I think it is a very uh, timely decision, considering you know what is happening in the world today and how the entire supply uh, chain is being disrupted and there's so much concern. But the exercise today we find is worth it. At least uh, you know we've got some basis on which to carry out with our procurement. I hope that uh, answers your question, Fergus. Yeah, it absolutely does. I was just just wondering as a, if it's possible to just ask one brief follow-up on that. Under that approach, would you work through and eventually come up with a list of companies that are blacklisted, you know, cannot be used in the Indian 5G network, or is it every single application is on a case-by-case basis? And you, I mean, so for example, would you conduct a review and decide that, because one of the component parts comes from Huawei, therefore um, that's problematic and, and all Huawei products are then banned going forward? Or is it something that's you know dealt with on a case-by-case basis for every company and every application? So that's the basic difference in the India solution. We are not naming any company as being blacklisted. We are not creating a negative list. We are creating a positive list. We are only saying that these are the companies whom we trust who can... Uh, enter our markets in the telecom sector 
and similarly for the products. So that that is the difference. We are we are not taking any names as to who is banned, etc. But before I forget, Fergus, can I just take time to just mention one aspect of 5G, which is called the 5G I. The 5G I is a 5G India standard, which has been approved by the ITU. And I would like your viewers to maybe Google it and learn about it. It's it's a great concept that in the rural areas, and especially like in Australia, you have these vast stretches between east and the west, uh, similar to what we have in India. We don't need that high speed of connectivity. We don't have bullet trains in our rural areas. So uh, in India, we have created the technology for a 5G I, which says that at least in these areas, you can reduce your infrastructure cost. Your cell size can be two or three times the cell size of a metro, and the same connectivity can be there without the fact uh, that you know you are traveling on a bullet train. So if anyone wants to know more about that, you can contact our office. But I must take advantage of this opportunity to spread the word around that there is a 5G I which has been accepted by ITU and it will uh, reduce your you know infrastructure cost because 70% of the cost of 5G is in the radio access network. So I thought I'll just uh, highlight this point. Thank you so much. Great. Well, you heard it here. Please take a look at the website. Lieutenant General Pan, thank you so much for your time. It's been a, a really interesting conversation. It's been wonderful to hear about the cooperation that is taking place between India and Australia. And, of course, um, very interesting to see what India has done in the 5G space and I think a lot of common threads there with the threat landscape that we're seeing in Australia as well. So thank you so much for your time, the generosity that you've uh, showed us by making yourself available for this, and we really appreciate the conversation. Thank you, Fergus. It was a pleasure having this conversation with you. Take care. All the best. Thank you. That's all we have time for this week on Policy, Guns and Money. We'll be back with another episode soon.